Okay, Hayyim Bem Shishi Shabbos. Today's Friday. And it's Erev Yud Beis Tammuz. Tomorrow's Shabbos. Yud Beis Tammuz. And um, how many years ago Yud Beis Tammuz? 82 years ago. Yeah, it's a couple of days ago. It's given the nest in Yud Beis Tammuz. The story of Yud Beis Tammuz, everybody knows. That the Friedrich Rebbe saw the Maimed Matzav of Yidin in Russia and he personally undertook personally undertook to preserve Yiddishkeit in Russia to give you a sense of what that means there were more Jews in Russia than any place else on the planet at that time and there were certainly more from Jews in Russia than anywhere else in the world at that time this would change incredibly quickly within a generation uh, the, the degree of I don't want to call it assimilation because they were not assimilating into anything they were just trying to survive it was incredible and uh, the Friedrich Rebbe undertook to personally see to it that Yiddishkeit would be preserved in Russia which is an impossible task absolutely impossible task I suppose in hindsight I, I don't know what the Rebbe was thinking and certainly by a Rebbe, there's a Das Tachten and there's a Das Elyon. There's a practical dimension and then there's a more spiritual dimension. Did the Rebbe believe that he was going to preserve Yiddishkeit in Russia indefinitely? Or was it a matter of principle? It's hard to say. I, my, my thought, my human mind will say that he started out thinking that this was sustainable. That maybe we'll keep Yiddishkeit going this way. But as time passed and the pressure mounted and Russia became crazier and crazier, and crueler and crueler, it became more and more an endeavor of Mercedes Nefesh, principle. Um, and the efforts that the Friedrich Rebbe undertook are incredible, completely remarkable. We, mamish don't, we don't appreciate the scale, the magnitude, and the success that the Rebbe had in those early years. In the Rebbe's own letters, in the Friedrich Rebbe's own writings, he describes the evolution of events that happened in the early 1920s. I happen to have on my desk last year's flyer from Medish Lenosh of Yerbez Thomas. And we talked about the Friedrich Rebbe's youth. The Friedrich Rebbe was 15 years old, 1 5, when his father made him his personal secretary. What does it mean, his personal secretary? Everything that Rebbe Rashab did, he consulted his son. You know, the Rebbe once by Fabrengen, some elter chassid was giving the Rebbe a hard time. Some Jew with a white beard was telling the Rebbe that he needed a little coaching in his Rebbeship. So I heard a tape, I can hear, I can hear it in my head, where the Rebbe turns to somebody. You want the job? You want to feed the Rebbe? And then you hear a meek backing away from, I'm sorry, Rebbe. The Rebbe didn't take advice from anybody. But on a different occasion, the Rebbe said, to one of the Hasidim who was bothering him, and the Rebbe told the following story. And the Friedrich Rebbe was 17, Friedrich was 17 years old. And the Rebbe Rashab sent him to Asifa Sarabonim, to a meeting of the Gedele Arabonim in Russia. He's talking about the Chofetz Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, the Slonim Rebbe, big people. And the Friedrich Rebbe was 17, he didn't even have a beard. And he called in the Rajbats. The Rajbats was a Chosid at Semach Tzedek, he was a generation older than the Rebbe Rashab. He was two generations older than the Fidike. He probably was 50 years older than the Rebbe, the Fidike Rebbe. And he told him that he wants him to accompany his son to this Asifa Sarabonim. 
But right before they left, he told them the following. Du sollst wissen, als ich schick em, und was wenige du wirst mich nicht besser. The Rebbe Rashab says to this old chassid who had once been his private tutor, I want you to know that I'm sending him. You're the beard, and he's the mind. Ich schick em, he was 17, or in the 17th year. Und the less you'll mix in, the better. In other words, the Rebbe Nishma Satan realized what kind of child he had at a very, very early age, and he stole from him his youth. I, I, I don't think there's a more direct way to say it. The Rebbe Rashab took away from the Fidik Rebbe his young years. I don't think there's another Rebbe like it. At 15, the Fidik Rebbe became a public person. Everything his father was involved with, the Fidik Rebbe was involved with, and there was quite a bit. There were a lot of tzaddas. Um And in spite of it, you know, the, the Rebbe tells a story. There's a, in the Kutasichas and Chelik Beis, they have stories that the, that the Rebbe told during Shiva. When the Fidik Rebbe passed away, passed away on Shabbos. So on Monday, the Rebbe says that three days you cry, and for the other days you eulogize. He says, we don't make eulogies, we don't make hespedim. And believe me, thank God we don't make hespedim, for a lot of reasons. Um, but he'll tell stories of the Shver, the Fidik Rebbe. And one of the stories that he told was that the Rebbe Nashab came back from a trip in Reishnu and Zayin, the Fidik Rebbe was 16, 16 going on 17. And he brought back from wherever he had been a walking stick, a cane with a silver handle, which was a symbol of Rebbeship, of, uh, of uh, nobility. And uh, he gave it to the Fidik Rebbe as a gift. And he said to his wife, to his Rebbetson, the last pennies I have went to buy this cane, this stick. And Fidik Rebbe needed a walking stick. I mean, he was 17. So she says to him, so then why do you waste the money on it? Why is it I mean, he needs a cane. So the Rebbe says to his wife, I just now realized who he is. The Rebbe Rashab says about his only son, and he knew that he was destined to be a Rebbe. By his bris, the Rebbe Maharash said, by his bris, the Rebbe Maharash said, the Rebbe Rashab knew that the Fidik Rebbe is destined to be a Rebbe. But at 17, I first discovered who he is. What's the pshat in this story? I'm sure there's many pshatim. I believe that one of the pshatim was that the Rebbe Rashab Poshet met other Rebbes, another Rebbe Shehoifen, and he says, boy, <laughs> this is an andesachengans. 17, he was, he was not 17, he was in the 17th year, Reishnun Zayin. So he was either 17 or 16 going on 17. He says, Father says, I just discovered who he is. So at 15, the Rebbe becomes a public servant, and he was Moisa Nefesh his whole life. At Kedekach, that a delegation of Hasidim went into the Rebbe Rashab, and they said to him, you don't have a right to endanger your son's life like this. Chassidim went into the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, you're sacrificing your son. I mean, he was going mamish on suicide missions, not one or two, repeatedly. He would go into the most private offices in the head of the Russian government where no Jew was allowed to be smelled, let alone seen, destroying documents, stamping documents. He did all kinds of things. I mean, completely reckless things. And the Chassidim went into the Rebbe and said, the is nicht to dein Sohn. So the Fidik Rebbe said, no, nefesh. I am sure, I am assured that we might have The Fidik Rebbe lived 70 years and considering his life, that was a very, very, very long lifetime. So from a very early age, the Fidik Rebbe's entire Metzius was Afghanis Tiburis. He was a public servant who was mamish sacrificed by his own father on the altar of, of the needs of Klal Yisrael 
remember my father telling me the story as a little boy. As a boy, I'm talking now, eight, nine years old, my father would tell me the story. And it, I couldn't understand it. How could a father, I'm looking at my father, imagining my father should take me and say, okay, you can't go to Cheder, you can't sit and learn. Why? You have to travel and you have to help people. At 15 years old, the idea to me, I couldn't see my father doing something like that. And I, I'm sure he couldn't do something like that. The Rebbe Rashab was a tate. There's no question the Rebbe Rashab was a father and he loved the Friedrich Rebbe. But the Rebbe Rashab was a Rebbe. And he understood what was needed. And he, he put his son through a chinuch that's very extraordinary. I, I feel, I cannot, I cannot confirm this. I don't know this as a matter of fact. I've never seen it in a sikha or in a letter. But my feeling is that Rebbe Rashab saw what the Friedrich Rebbe's generation was going to be like. And he prepared him for it. 25 years that the Rebbe Rayat worked with his father in Askanas Tiburis, prepared him for a generation of public service on a level which is mamish historic, and extraordinary, unbelievable sacrifice, unbelievable sacrifice, indescribable sacrifice. The Friedrich Rebbe didn't have his own life. He was completely the property of Yidin. And his father gave him to the Jewish nation. His father gave him to the Jewish nation at the age of 15. He becomes a Rebbe. And he starts to do what a Rebbe does. He started to say Chesidus. He had Yechidus. He talked about Avoida. And he started to rejuvenate Chabad traditions. Friedrich Rebbe was a tough Rebbe. When he first became a Rebbe, I think it's a constant. Every Rebbe, when they start out, are very, very exacting. As time passes, they soften. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing or a bad thing. But just like by the Rebbe also. The early years, the Rebbe was so much more strict than later. It's incredible. And the Friedrich Rebbe demanded from his Chesidim and from his Tmimim, Avoidah, all the things that his father had done, but didn't last long. Within a year or two, and in the middle, the Rebbe got sick a few times. In a year or two, news started to reach the Rebbe that there is a mass abandonment of Jewish leadership. Jewish leaders are running away. Now, Russia was an incredibly established Jewish community, life. Um, Russia had the millions and millions of Jews, most of which were from. If not immediately before gen the revolution, but one generation earlier for sure. The most powerful position in a, in a city was the Rav. He was officially recognized by the government. He had authority. He wasn't afraid of anybody. And the communities were strong. They were well established. And they were head, they were led from a center that was very strong. And um, so Yiddishkeit thrived under very difficult conditions, but it thrived. Yiddin lived. Then when the revolution happened, and it's true that it started before the revolution, Rabbanim just abandoned their posts. They ran away. Why? They didn't want to go to jail. They didn't want to lose their lives. They didn't want to lose their homes. And it happened in mass. It happened quickly. Rabbanim shocked them, alarmed them. And the Fidei Kippur says, wait a minute. What right do Rabbanim have to abandon their position? So they say, what do you mean, what right did Rabbanim have? They're threatening them. They're going to put him in jail. They say, so? You're a dove. You're a religious leader. This is your role and this is your hour. You're needed for peace time. You're needed for moments of crisis. Stand your ground. Go to jail. And to, <laughs> you read his letters and you are surprised by his surprise. You, you can't understand why the Friedrich Rebbe cannot understand why the Bonham are running away from their jobs. You are a Rav. The hour, the call of the hour is Mesiris Nefesh. Go. 
But all over Russia, the Rabbonim were not exactly taking counsel from the brand new Lubavitcher Rebbe. They abandoned their posts. And the Rebbe said, all of a sudden, there was an incredible vacuum. In a matter of months or years, there was a vacuum of incredible proportions. You're talking about hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Jews, who were directly affected by leaderlessness. And in such conditions, to not have leaders is the worst. No, they became tailors. They became street sweepers. Abinishtarov. I'm sure that clandestinely they would learn with people, they'd pass Kinshailis. But the Rebbe expected them to do what Rebbe Levich did stand up there on that podium and scream until they lock you up. Rebbe Levich never shut his mouth for a minute. That's how the Rebbe saw every Rav's role. The job of a rabbi is to leave. It's a difficult time. That's what you're for. And you read his Igris Kadesh, you are very surprised, in my view, by his not understanding. Imamish, he's surprised how you talk about Abonim are running away. Now that Abonim are stuck to their jobs, they can't move. So the Rebbe undertook to recreate leadership in Russia. You're talking about 1921-22. And he did it with an incredible amount of organization and skill. The first thing he did was he sent around agents to gather information. Rebbe Tzian Shemtev, Rebbe Simcha Gorodetsky, my son was reading out of Simcha Gorodetsky's biography. For those who are not aware, there's two volumes that are called Yahados Hadmoma, that were written by Gottlieb, which are biographies of a number of Hasidim living in Russia. They're short. Those books must be translated into English. I don't even know if you can get them in Hebrew anymore. They're so incredible. Because yeah, you have short biographies. It's not a whole book on a person. In one safe, you can have 10 or 12 or 15 biographies of people who were Mesonefesh Yiddishkeit for years and years. So one of the personalities that uh, Gottlieb interviewed with Rav Simcha Gordetsky. Rav Simcha Gordetsky in 1921 or 1920 was diagnosed with a terminal illness. He's going to die. So the of the yeshiva, called him. And they said that, uh, that the doctors have very, very not favorable prognosis for him. He should go home. So he says to his Anala, why should I go home? He says, well, <laughs> however, they told it to him, but you're going to go home to uh, meet your maker. He says, I can die here too. Has, you know, this cemeteries in the stuff. And he refused, he'll stay in yeshiva until he dies. He was a mamish, he had a tick, he was a death sentence. So the Hanala went into the Rebbe and told the Rebbe what he said. The one you have to go home to die, he can die here also. The Fidu Kebbe was very, very moved by this. Incredibly moved. The idea that, Temchatmimim is not just when you go to school, but this is life. So the Rebbe called him in and says, oh, if you're staying in yeshiva and you're sick, so you can't learn, let me make you my shliach. The man lived almost to 85. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of this. Let me make you my shliach. And Shine, that's the story. The doctors told him to, he's finished. He says he'll die in yeshiva. So they said, you'll become mine. And Itaka was the Rebbe his whole life. Rebbe Simcha Gardeski came out of Russia around 1970. He probably passed away in the middle 80s. And he was involved with the Bukhara Yidin, with the Yid, Asian Jews. And he was, he was a Sinsha Yid who helped so many people. His whole life was shlichas. And the Rebbe sent him from place to place to gather information. Where there's needs for shochtim, for abonim, for malamdim, and so on. And the, 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 this, he describes how he went into And he would stand by Friedrich Rebbe and report tzadus. Every time he reported another tzadah, the Rebbe would cry again. His mother said that Rebbe 
Shtenesara says every night after Yechidus there's a puddle of tears on the floor. She says, I raised this man. I grew up. I've lived with this man my whole life. I never knew him. Every night after Yechidus was a puddle of tears on the floor. It's a lot of tears. A puddle of tears. is a sach And then after he gathered this information, he went into action. He mobilized every one of his soldiers. Which means that Temchat Mimim, which had been started a quarter of a century before, was visionary. It was, a, it was an anticipatory thing. Those younger light now filled all the spaces that had been vacated by the Rabbonim and the Shachtim Lamdim, who would try to preserve themselves. Who could blame them? And it was very effective. It was very successful. We have now, they found documents, lists of hundreds of Chadorim, hundreds, that the Friedekev was personally supporting all over Russia. There's a, a Rishime from Friedrich Erev, which is Mamish, a Moedundekirishima, how he was traveling from Leningrad to Moscow in 1927, a few months before his arrest. And on the train, he meets a Jew who was a very, very high official in the uh, Communist Party, in the party that governed at that time. And uh, this fellow recognized the Friedrich Erev because he, as a little boy, used to go with his father to the Rebbe Marash. That means he was older than the Friedrich Rebbe. Friedrich was in his 40s, he was probably in his 50s and his 60s. He's probably a very intelligent man, a complete atheist, but he was a humanist, he was moral. A lot of the communists were really ideologues, they believed it. You know, I mean, Lenin died too soon for us to know what Lenin would have done. Stalin was pushing mad. But the communists believed, they actually believed they were going to make life better for people. As it turned out, they created whole new definitions of the word evil. But uh, he was a good man. And the Friedrich Eber describes how he avoided him and he evaded him, and, but he couldn't. He, he cornered him. And he wanted to have a meeting with him. Who is this? It doesn't say his name. It just says he was, it says an initial, but one of the most, he was a very important person of the Communist Party then, who was Jewish. And he recognized the Friedrich Eber. The Friedrich Eber looked very much like the Rebbe Marash. They looked very similar. Right. The Rebbe always, whenever the Rebbe told the story, he would cry. It was like, a, you could... The Menashe figure looked very similar. A grandfather and a grandson. They looked very, very much the same. And he, had, he recognized the Friedrich Rebbe because he had been by his Zayda 50 years before or 40 years before. So he makes a meeting with the Friedrich Rebbe and they come together and they talk, which is a story unto itself. And one of the things is, I have an old father. He lives in this and this shtetl. And I want to send him money, but he says, I'm an apokaitis, he doesn't want my money. He's an, I'm an heretic, I want my money. So the Rebbe writes, I know his father. I'm supporting him. <laughs> He's a Malavid in my head. Finished. It's so ironic. You know. And it was an incredibly effective effort. It was an incredibly effective effort. And uh, understandably, this made the Russians crazy. This was not, uh, this was not, you know, mud and sticks. This was not, it was a very, very organized, central effort. You have to understand, when the Friedrich Rebbe left Russia, this fell apart. It wasn't like it continued. The degree of organization and the, the, the measure of reach, the number of people touched by the Friedrich Rebbe when he personally engaged in this effort is really unbelievable. It's historic. And like I said, they're finding more and more papers, documents that were written at the time enumerating the scale of the operations. And the reason why these documents exist is because the Fidekeb was getting his money from America. So he needed to report to the joint. He had to write everything down. 
and some of these papers, I, I figured there's got to be an office someplace in the joint which has copies of these papers, which would be very interesting to read. But we have the copies that the Friedrich Rebbe preserved somehow. Not a lot of them, but some of them. We read literally hundreds of schools with the numbers of students, the numbers of teachers, and the cost. Lists and lists and lists and lists and lists. Incredible. From one year alone. And the Friedrich Rebbe set himself, this is his task. It was completely unrealistic to undertake. How are you going to support all Yiddishkeit in Russia yourself? Not Yidden, Yiddishkeit. And then of course there were the other problems with Shabbos and part of the money went to create semi-private enterprise, but at that time the Russians had permitted so that people could refrain from working on Shabbos. All of these efforts were undertaken by Friedrich and Rebbe and they eventually had enough of it. You know, they, in, in their papers, they called him the Tzaddik from Leningrad, and they would blast him every day, these vicious... They had the paper called Pravda. They all, <laughs> the New York Times is called All the News Fit the Print. Pravda means MS, truth. <laughs> and the only rule that was about Pravda was no word of truth in the entire paper, from cover to cover. And they would write these miserable, mean, angry op-eds. They would have been very, very happy, the Russians, had a mob attack the Friedrich Rebbe. In other words, they wanted to incite people. Um, Friedrich Rebbe was incredibly well respected. Incredibly. In spite of his youth, in spite of the fact that he was a new Rebbe, he had just become a Rebbe in 1920, but the undertaking made him internationally famous, really, even before he was arrested. And uh, he wasn't going to back down. He was unrelenting. He meant it. And every year that passed, the situation got worse, the noose was tightened, the screws were tightened, and again, I cannot tell you this for sure because it's not explicit, but my suspicion is, my sense, my feel is, that in the very beginning, when the Friedrich started out, he intended for this to be sustainable, to keep Yiddishkeit going this way, although it's not normal, it's not the way it was. For 200, 300 years in Russia, every city had a rabbi, and the local rabbi sought the needs of his community. But nobody wanted to be a rabbi. Nobody wanted to go to jail. And I believe as time passed, that Rebbe understood that he was a time bomb, that this was not going to be sustained. He was going to push it as far as he could. Every day was a day of Yiddishkeit in Russia. He was going to push it as far as he could. I feel, and this you could see in his writings quite clearly, the Friedrich Rebbe never expected to survive. Never. He did not undertake the efforts he undertook that he would live till 70 and pass away in a bed. Not for a minute. He made himself into a living torch. He was going to be a Yiddishkeit and he was not going to question the consequences. He wasn't going to think about it. He was going to go forward. And he mobilized his Tmimim, his Chsidim. And they joined forces with him. The Mesidus Nefesh of the Tmimim is impossible to imagine. Unbelievable. You're talking about very big people, very intelligent people, very smart people, very learned people, who would schlep hundreds of miles to teach a child aloe base, a dua bris, until, until the gas ran out of the tank, until there was nothing left, either with the help of the Russians or because of their own exhaustion. The Messias Nefesh of the Tmimim was it's impossible to fathom. But as years passed, it became more and more obvious that this again, this is my read, that it's not going to be sustainable, it can't continue like this, but as long as it was going to go, he was going to push it. And they eventually arrested him. They had enough. They couldn't intimidate him. They couldn't stop him. And he was a leader. He was, a, he was very, very much the leader of Russian Jewry. He 
set for himself the responsibility if there's a Jew any place in Russia who needs Yiddishkeit he's going to provide it again it's, it's not an undertaking that you can justify logically there was nothing logical about the Rebbe's approach it was a time of Mercedes Nefesh it was a time of incredible urgency and this was the plane this was the plateau he put himself on and this is where he operated from you ask me questions on a story He was a very powerful person. The Friedrich Rebbe was known internationally. Russia was an infant state. You have to understand, Soviet Russia, first of all, you have to understand, let me ask you a question. Okay, you know any history? A little history, no. Could you imagine what would have happened to the Soviet Union if instead of Joseph Stalin becoming the head of the Communist Party, it would have been uh, labeled Trotsky? Trotsky, who was his equal, who was his, who was his competition. How would the Soviet Union have looked? It's impossible to know, right? You can't rewrite history. But Stalin was evil. Now Lenin was no good guy. Don't misunderstand. He was responsible for the death of many, many, many people. But communism was an idea that was incre extremely, extremely optimistic and good. Communism is, a, is, is much kinder than capitalism, except it's not realistic. What does communism mean? You look after everybody. There's no such thing as no one without a, without a job. There's no such thing as a person without a home. It's a beautiful idea, except it's not a realistic idea. You take with people competition, you've destroyed a society. So the people believed in this cause. The evil from communism emerged slowly. And the Friedrich Rebbe, at the same time, had developed international acclaim, and even within Russia, they would have been, if they had arrested the Rebbe, even when they did arrest him, hundreds of thousands of Jews would have put their lives on the line for the Friedrich Rebbe. They didn't run away and hide, they arrested the Rebbe, they came out in mass. Tens of thousands of Jews came out in protest, risking their own lives. Friedrich Rebbe was a very powerful personality. They didn't want to arrest the Friedrich Rebbe. They were hoping to intimidate him, or at least to take away his influence. You know, let the Rebbe sit in his ivory tower, if the people are afraid, probably as time went on, there were less people. That's not, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Had that happened, they would not have arrested him. You know what I mean is, like the people who would show up to demonstrate, if they had done it earlier, it would have been more people. They would have been more brazen. But as they saw how, that's you know, the way I see it is, they arrested the Friedrich Rebbe because they did not see an end to his effort. They envisioned that if they leave him alone, he'll succeed. And they were hoping to do everything other than arrest him. In other words, people were very supportive of the Fidi Rebbe. They wished and hoped and anticipated that they'll, you know, if you were connected to Schneerson, your name was in the local paper. And your neighbors read about it. And your neighbors were incited to hate you. You know, how much could people endure? But the Yidden stood strong, and when the Russians realized the Fidikab has this much power and influence, they arrested him. You know, there was a Jew named Hendel Lieberman. He lived in New York, he was an artist. And uh, he was a man of Futtafas' brother. How could two brothers have two different last names? There are bigger questions than that one. But Rabbi Hendel Lieberman was an artist. And in Russia, he worked. He worked for the party. And it, I've heard the story hearsay. I never heard it, obviously, directly from him. I don't even remember Rabbi Hendel very well. But he was in some office of a very important person in the Communist Party, and behind him on the wall was hanging two photographs. 
And above the photographs, it said, the enemies of the revolution. Now, the enemy of the revolution was like being a complete apokoides, a koifa be'ikir. Label Trotsky and the Fiyadikir era. Now, I, I, when I heard this story, I was a little bit young, but as I got older, I said to myself, Russia has hundreds of millions of citizens. Why would the Friedrich Rebbe matter to them so much? So this rabbi, this jid, is keeping a few people. Enemy number one. Enemy number one. What did the Friedrich Rebbe do? What? Label Trotsky was Stalin's counterpart. He made the Red Army. He created the Russian army. He created the possibility for the state. He was a powerful person, an international figure, a great writer and a great speaker and an ideologue. Friedrich Rebbe was a Rebbe. Why were they so afraid of him? It's very hard to fathom and understand. Uh, but it does talk because he, he stood up to them single-handedly. And he did it with organization. He did it with skill, with thought. They, so they arrested him. And they were planning to shoot him. There's no question about it. Like the Rebbe told the story, the Rebbe told the story of Fabreng, that at the Fiyik of the Moldetel, the Rebbe de Shveta, Moldetel, the Fiyik of the told the following story. That when he was being interrogated, so his interrogator was sitting opposite him. And there was a table between them. And on the desk was notes. Says the Rebbe, I leaned over and I looked at the notes. And I saw on the paper, which, which had my file, these were the Rebbe's words. Something was written and crossed out. On the second line it said, Senor Salafki, 10 years of slave labor in the Far East. And it was crossed out. And then it said, three years of exile in Kastrama. So the Rebbe said by Fabrengen that when the Friedrich Rebbe told the story, he said that there was something written on the first line and it was crossed out. He didn't say what it was. Because it said, uh, it said that they were going to, death by the firing squad. And the Rebbe did not want to say this about himself because he was alive. We're very careful about words. So Mel, the Rebbe said, something was written, he didn't say what, and it was crossed out. They had every intention of shooting him. As soon as they arrested him, the international pressure was incredible. And the Soviets at that time, even Stalin, were concerned with international pressure. Had this happened six or seven years later, I don't even want to think what the outcome would have been. Russia had almost no recognition. They were a country with no, nobody recognized them as a country. So they couldn't do any trade. They couldn't have any, they were just on their own. And they needed international support. The miracle of your base Tammuz in Das Takten, in a world, in a very practical level, is the fact that the information leaked out of Russia. But the infam- as soon as the Rebbe was arrested, they knew about it in the West. It was in the papers in London, in Paris, in Berlin, in New York, in, in, in Riga. Every he- state capital, every uh, he says the capital of every country knew of the Rebbe's arrest within hours of his arrest. And that's what saved the Rebbe's life in Das Tachten. And people say that the credit for that goes to the Rebbe. To our Rebbe. Because that's, that's Mamish what saved his life. Because they couldn't, and, and they wrote about how important he is and how he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a leader in the Jewish world and so on and so forth. And the Soviets blinked. They thought twice. There's a but of course the, the story has so many details. But that's, that's the spirit of the story. This, I heard a story a couple of years ago which I find so interesting I never heard it before but I heard it from a good source that Mardcha Dubin 
Martha Dubin was a member of parliament in Latvia. There was an organization called Agudas Yisrael, which now exists in Israel and in America. It is, it is the frumest political body in the world. Agudas Yisrael is, is Haredim, it's really from people. Chesidim is not the very from people who've organized themselves under a political banner. They call themselves Agudas Yisrael. In Israel, it shows the part of Agudas Yisrael. We, Lubavitch, and a few other groups of from Yidin don't join Aguda for various reasons, which are not relevant at the moment. But Agudas Yisrael was a very polit powerful political body. In Europe, Agudas Yisrael had millions of members. They voted as a bloc, and they were very powerful, because they had millions of Frumayidin. Millions of Frumayidin, millions, millions, six, seven, eight, nine, million Frum Jews. They were, most of them were members of Aguda, and when there was an election, they could turn an election in Poland and in other countries. And they were able to negotiate rights for the Jews. I mean, Polish Goyim, after World War I, were incredibly anti-Semitic. But Aguda was a force that they had to reckon with because they had, they had the right of the vote. There were a lot of people. Martha Dubin was a member of the, what's called the SEM. It was the Latvian parliament as the representative of the political party called Aguda Sistelel. And he was an incredibly kind man. He was, an, he was the Fidekab called him Sara Chesed. He was pushed up. A good skite versus super. The goodness of this person was completely beyond fathom. He, he, the way I've heard it described is like the Rambam describes himself. Now, the Rambam writes in his letter, the famous letter of the Rambam, which he wrote to his Talmud, Rabbi Yosef. He writes, Every morning I go to the palace. Now, the Rambam didn't live in the capital city. There was old Cairo and new Cairo. I, I don't know the particulars. But he had to travel a distance from where he lived to the capital. And he had to sit with Saladin, with the king of the, uh, the Egyptians, the sultan, for several hours, listen to all this nonsense. He had to entertain a king, and he had to meet all the members of his court. He said, I never get home before midday. <laughs> when I arrive at home, exhausted and dusty, you have to understand, it's Egypt, there's a line of people to meet me all around the block, hundreds of people, Jews and non-Jews, rich and poor men and women. The rabbi says, I walk into my house, I don't have a chance to eat. And I don't stop till I see every patient. The Rambam said, I don't stop till I see every patient. Those things are appointments. You got in line, and that day the Rambam would see you. If you could afford, you paid. If you didn't afford, you didn't pay. And if you needed help with medicine, the Rambam gave you money to buy medicines. The Mortre Dubin is described, but this is the Rambam. The Rambam writes this time, by the time I finish my day's work, I lay on my back, I don't have energy to eat. The Rambam describes it. So he tells his Talmud, you want to visit me, you're free to visit me, but I won't even tell you hello. The Martha Dubin had an office. He was, a, he was like a senator. People would line up by his door, huge lines, not necessarily Jews, and he helped everybody. Pasha Tavis, he was a good man. He was an incredibly, he was kind on a level that's mamish extraordinary. And he, he miraculously survived Hitler. The Fidekeber was out of his mind trying to find him. When he came to America, he saved the Fidekeb's life. And the Fidekeb's letters are so desperate, looking for him. He passed away in Moscow. He passed away in a bed. He had a natural death. The Russians captured him when they occupied Riga, took him to Moscow. My father remembers him. My aunt remembers him. He was living in the Moscow Shul, and the Russians, and all of their evil, saved his life. He passed away in 1954. He, has a, he actually has a tomb, which in that generation is a big deal to have a tombstone as a big madrig. In Malachavka. You could go visit the Markatubans. Huh? 
they moved him, but he was living in Moscow. My father. Yeah, okay. But Amar was an unbelievably good man. And he got word that the Rebbe was arrested. So what do you do? Listen to this. What do you do? He smuggles himself into Russia. Now to get into Russia is not hard. To get out is hard. He smuggles himself into Russia. This is a political person a very, with a big beard. And he has himself arrested. He gets himself arrested. And he says to his captors, bring me to Molotov. Molotov was Stalin's right-hand man for many, many years. He was the, uh, the, what, the, the, the what we call him, the Secretary of State. The Minister, minister of, of, of Interior. Very powerful man. And they bring him to Molotov. I, I can help the Soviet Union. And he says to them, you let the Lubavitcher Rebbe leave Russia, I will get you official recognition. Which was for the Russians the most important thing. And that's what happened. The Fidik Rebbe's life was traded off for recognition by the Latvian parliament of the Soviet Union. That's the story in Das Tachten. I heard the story only recently. It's a very interesting story. Um, but this is the story that Rebbe was arrested. And his, the love that there was for him at that time in Russia and outside of Russia was really very special. There were no descending voices at that time. In a little while, people started to not like him. But at that particular point, everybody was in love with him. The Heilige Belzerov used to say, the Heilige Belzer used to say, as an Ian from Mercedes Nefesh, I made Allah tell me from Lubavitch Rebbe. The Heilige Belzer said, when it comes to Mercedes Nefesh, we are all disciples of the Lubavitch Rebbe, the Belzerov, and who was in a category all by himself. This is the story. So he was arrested. And eventually he went off to exile. He lasted nine days and they freed him. He comes home, Yubis Tamas. Yubis Tamas happens to be his birthday, which is very meaningful and very significant. First of all, I mentioned to you before that by his bris, by the Fidik Rebbe's bris, so the Rebbe Manash was the Sandik, his grandfather who was still alive. The Rebbe Manash passed away when the Fidik Rebbe was a little bit more than two. Okay? But when he was born, the Marash was still the Rebbe the Nasi, and the Rebbe Marash was his sandik. So when they did the bris, the Rebbe cried, like all children cry by a bris. So the Rebbe Marash says to the little boy, Vos veinstu, vest oizvaksen, vezayna Rebbe, vezogin chesidus besofa beruda. Why are you crying? You'll grow up, you'll be a Rebbe, and you'll say chesidus with a clear tongue, with a clear voice. Then, in 1920, 1919, 1920, so the Rebbe Rashab said Chassidus on his birthday. The Rebbe Rashab always said Chassidus on his birthday. If it was uh, during the week, he would say it in private. If it was Shabbos, he would say it in front of everybody. And that year, the, um, the Rebbe Rashab said a Maimer, I think it was Shabbos, and after the Maimer, the Rebbe says to him, I give you a bracha that you should say Chassidus Barabim on your birthday. Chassidus in public on your birthday. So the Rebbe right away retorts. The Fidik Rebbe understood the significance of this. And he says, write to his father, But it should be with kindness and compassion. In other words, the Rebbe Rashab told his son, you are going to be a Rebbe. And the Rebbe's son says, The is not understood correctly. What it really means, the Fidik Rebbe says, I will be a Rebbe, but I'm not going to see negative in my chassidim. That's what the words that's what it means. I'll be a Rebbe, but I'm only going to see positive, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing for all of us. And when the Rebbe became Rebbe in 1951, he made the same announcement, that if he's taking this position, it's on the same terms that the Fidik Rebbe took from his father, but he'll be a Rebbe, but he only sees good, which is wonderful for us. 
And that's the kind of Rebbe the Vedic Rebbe was, the kind of Rebbe the Rebbe was. And then he finishes Hatas Gedoyer Zibin Yar. It took seven years. Yud Beis Tamas Pei Zayin was the seventh year after he became a Rebbe. And then, when he was released from prison, he said Chassidus on his birthday in public. And from that time forward, the Fidik Rebbe's birthday became also the Chaga Giyula of the Fidik Rebbe. And every year, the Fidik Rebbe, of course, would say Chassidus and Yud Beis and so on. Now, the end of the story is that the Rebbe came home, a free man, and it was a big deal. It was a very, very big deal. Yud Beis Tamas, as you know, was Tuesday. Yud Gimel Tamas was Wednesday. Tuesday was the day off. So it wasn't until Yud Gimel Tamas that he was officially informed that he's free. And that's why, because of Stalin's moving the Sabbath from Shabbos, or the Havdal Sunday, to Tuesday, we have two days of Yom Tif. And he arrived home on Friday. Friday was Tezvav Sivan. The following day, Shabbos, the Rebbe said, Chesidus, and he said, Agoymol, and so forth. Tezvav and Tezayin Tamas, yes. Um... And at first, it was a very big celebration. But that celebration died quickly. Because they discovered that it wasn't that the Russians had freed the Friyidik Rebbe. And they could continue his work. They made him a prisoner inversely, backwards. The whole Russia became the prison, and he was the only free person. Anybody who came near him was immediately arrested. Immediately. So they decapitated the effort. They separated the head from the body. His whole power was his personality, his leadership, his organization. They realized that they cannot stop him. Anybody, you communicated with him, you wrote him a letter, spoke to him on the phone, you met him personally, you went to jail. And the Rebbe really quickly realized, within weeks, maybe even within days of his release from prison, that it was not business as usual. He couldn't just continue. And he, for the sake of his chassidim, and for the sake of any preservation of Yiddishkeit, realize at that point that the worst thing this effort could have is a center. In other words, what had been the strength of the movement for the first six or seven years of that decade, of the 20s, now became a liability. Because the Rebbe was the center, he was the direct source of all money. Everybody came to him for money. He provided everybody with American funds. That's what it was. Money came from Europe, from America. These are Jews, Rabbi Sai, who were not religious. We have to remember this. We have to appreciate this. They gave the Rebbe incredible sums of money. Enormous sums of money. All of these efforts were only possible because of American and European money. And we have to understand the goodness of God. I told this to you recently. I heard myself from the Rebbe. Where the Rebbe was talking about the idea that the Eibishter scatters Jews all over the world, the Rebbe said that Eibishter geshit yidin ken America is his own poshet machan asach gelt. The Eibishter sent Jews to America to simply make a lot of money. That money bailed us out then, and it, most importantly, it bailed us out after the Holocaust. It was American money that built the Jewish communities in Israel and in Europe and in America. And we're from because of that American money, even though that American money did not come from Orthodox Jews. It was Yiddish gelt. I think it's important to appreciate this. And they gave the Rebbe enormous sums of money. So he understood that it has to become decentralized. In other words, to go not just underground, but without a cap, without a head. You know, like they say now in the, in the movement of terrorist cells. They have to decentralize. They cannot have a center. And he therefore understood that his presence in Russia is a liability. It's a liability to people's physical safety, and it's a liability for the continuation of Yiddishkeit. Because as long as he's there, everyone is looking to him, it's not good for him to lead, because the activities will be destroyed. So he made the decision to leave Russia. It took him six months to make that decision. He agonized. 
First of all, he disappeared. He left Leningrad and he moved to Malachavka, a little suburb of Moscow, and he gave strict orders that nobody is to know where he is and no one is to come see him. He spent the entire summer thinking. I mean, the Rebbe, I told this to you recently, in my mind, I, how many hundreds of hours did the Friedrich Rebbe just sit and think, what should I do? What? He was a leader. He didn't have anybody to turn to. What should I do? What does the Ebishter want from me? And he went through this exercise in his life over and over again. He became a Rebbe with one image. Within two years, that completely changed. Five years later, that changed again. Five years after that, it changed again. When it came to America, it changed. And he would spend hours and hours and hours agonizing, thinking and thinking and thinking about every possibility. He would even consult people and ask them what they think. And then he would put it into his... Until, but when he came to a conclusion, when he made a decision, it was resolute. It was like rock. But this is my vision of the uniqueness of the Fiyadika Rebbe, how many times he recreated himself and his sense of duty to the world. The Yidin, it's, it's mamish incredible. Very, very remarkable. He agonized for a long time. And at the end of the summer, he went to his father's grave. He went to the stuff, which was a very dangerous t- journey. He took along his daughter, Howard Ebbetson, and he was very upset when a chassid came to see him on the train. And the Rebbe said, how do you even know I'm here? And why did you come? You're putting me in danger and yourself in danger and everybody in danger. And don't tell anybody else that I'm traveling and so on. He spent a few hours or days by his father's seeing, and he said, my father has allowed me to leave Russia. And he went back to Leningrad and he made an announcement. Everybody should come for Tishrei. And there was a Tishrei, that was historic, Tens of thousands of people came and the Russians turned a blind eye. Because once they realized that the Rebbe is going, it was good riddance, you know, just go. <laughs> Have your last parade, make your last hoorays, make as much noise as you want, get out of here. And he left. Fidik left. And um, the efforts of Yiddishkeit went underground, the efforts of Yiddishkeit became decentralized, and in Da's Tachten they were reduced much. They were not the same after the Rebbe left. They were not. I mean, you didn't have hundreds of schools in Russia. You didn't have thousands and thousands of Yiddishik in learning. But anybody who could try, he, he set a tone of Mesidus Nefesh. The 30s were much more difficult for the 20s. The late 30s were much more difficult. You know, Stalin had what was called purges. He'd just kill whole classes of people. He'd just go nuts. And one of those purges was what they called Schneersonics. You were a Schneerson, he put you against the wall and gave you, finished. Um, the, all the biggest Hasidim met their maker this way in 1937-1938-1939. Um, Take terrible risks that another Yiddish kid, should know his Hebrew name, should marry a Jewish person. That's what they were, you know. I'll tell you my own personal understanding of Russia. My grandfather, Shalom, had three children who we ended up raising alone because my grandmother died when my father was two and a half. He gave them one Hebrew name. My grandfather, my father's Ogazunzan, was named after a Jew whose name was David Abba. But my father's name is only Abba. And the reason was because my grandfather wanted his children to remember their Hebrew names. And he figured if they'll have one name, it'll be easier to remember. Just understand how people thought. 
He wanted his children should know that they have a Jewish name. And if it will be too complicated, they won't remember it. So he gave each one of them one name. You understand? My father's named after Adavadaba, because it's easier to, for a child to remember one name. This was the world the people lived in. And they never stopped. Now, we have to stop today. We'll have to continue with Shema on Sunday. The Friedrich Rebbe did not see Yud Beis Tammuz as a personal vindication. The Friedrich Rebbe saw Yud Beis Tammuz as a cosmic event. That means to say he understood that his story moved heavens, moved the heavens, and would eventually move the earth. He made such a big deal out of Yud Beis Tammuz, such a yomtif. He begged people, celebrate, party, rejoice on this day even though his own children were still languishing in Russia and suffering in Russian prisons and gulags and so on, he saw Yud Beis Tammuz as a victory of good over evil that was cosmic, that was, in other words, it was in the air. And in hindsight, we understand what he saw. 80, 90 years later, you see that the Rebbe saw the end of this tyranny. And it was, he, he felt, the Friedrich Rebbe, that the Messias Nefesh, the Jewish people standing up to the Soviets, notwithstanding, that today there are millions of Jews in Russia who don't even know that they, what the word Jew means. They've never seen a sefer The Rebbe once cried. But the Rebbe made the mitzvah sefer for the children. So we asked that every Jewish child should buy a letter in sefer And they should also buy a letter for a Russian Jewish child. And that they should somehow inform Russian children that they were given a letter in a sefer So the Rebbe told a story how a Russian child was informed that a boy or a girl in America spent an American dollar and bought him a letter in a sefer So he says to the person who gave him this information, what's a sefer So they told him, go and ask your mother. So he goes and he asks his mother, what's a sefer And his mother says, I don't know, go and ask your grandmother. This is, what, this is how effective. It was. This is how effective Stalin was. This is millions and millions of Jews never. But the, the Rebbe saw his efforts at Mercedes Nefesh and his Hasidim Evans Nefesh as breaking a force. And today we are seeing the effects, the benefits of, of these efforts. In other words, the spiritual energies that were released, the spiritual koiches that the Mercedes Nefesh unleashed, in spite of the short term hardships, it opened up possibilities for a much better world a much freer world, a world where Yidin could be Yidin virtually any place on this planet and serve the Eibishter without fear and this is why you must such a big Yom Tov now I gave you papers <laughs> and you can give them back and tomorrow on Sunday maybe we'll read them